0: You're listening to Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belial, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Now here are a few
1: highlights from this week's program. Space impacts our lives. When we design our own, or we have someone come in and design for us, it's, whatever you do, it's going to have an impact. It could be positive, could be negative. You, generally, you'd like to avoid the negative, accentuate the positive. And that's what the space therapy does. The stuff that we learn, we in
2: turn put back into the world, which has an effect on the world, others learn from that. So there's this wonderful cycle in both the education, but in the practice of architecture, is that what we do actually affects that which we do.
0: Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Berlin City Honda of Portland, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank.
3: This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 196, airing for the first time on Sunday, June 14th, 2015. Today's theme is Designing Space. We may be more impacted by the spaces we inhabit than we realize. Everything from our access to light to how we experience acoustics has the potential to contribute to our well-being and our relationships. Today, we speak with architecture professors Roger Richman and Eric Stark about the work they are doing in this area and how they are educating the next generation of Maine architects about these important concepts. Thank you for joining us. On Love, Maine Radio, we've had the good fortune to speak with architects before about the importance of things like light and space. And today we have with us an individual who really has an interest in space. Roger Richman is a professor in the University of Maine Augusta's architecture program, a program he founded in the 1980s. He is a design consultant and partner at Space Therapy a design and behavior post-occupancy analysis firm. Currently, Mr. Richmond or Professor Richmond lives in South Freeport, Maine with his wife, Beverly, and Nora the Cat. He was the first architect hired to work for NASA. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, It's my
1: pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. This is a treat.
3: So when we say NASA, we mean NASA.
1: We mean NASA, National Aeronautics and Space Administration.
3: So that's a really big deal.
1: Uh, At the time, it it really was a big deal because this was— the era was we were going to the moon. I mean, we were ready to go to the moon. Kennedy had established the um, the directive that by the end of the the uh, the decade, the '60s, that we would have someone on the moon. So I was actually in NASA working at the time when Apollo 11 was on its way to the moon, and so I was by kind of vicariously participating in that all of that excitement.
3: Tell us what NASA might get out of a relationship with an architect. What is it that an architect brings to the table when it comes to space travel?
1: Well, what I had um, proposed, I had to do uh, in in the University of Florida, where I I graduated with my master's degree, I had to do a, um, a thesis project. And the thesis project was what I wanted to do was the whole country was so uh, excited and agog about space travel, right? This is a very, very exciting time. And so I want to do something that was involved with space, something off the Earth. And I just got to thinking about wouldn't it be amazing if something were to happen like a moon port or something like that that was based on architectural principles, even more than engineered principles? The issue, of course, was engineering comes first because that's survival, and this is a very, very hostile environment. And what we decided what I decided to do is I was going to do a an architecturally conceived moon port. And the only way to get information about this was to go to NASA. So I made a proposal to go to NASA and talk with them and get information for my master's thesis. What I did not know was that they were very intrigued by this whole idea of an architect. Uh, asking about how to design environments for space. So after I worked on my master's thesis, they invited me to come there and have a job and, and be the only architect. There were 5,500 engineers and one architect, and that was, that was I, and uh, I was uh, involved with discovering and writing a book for them. They, that was one of the requirements of my job there, of writing a book for them about the human experience in a, a sealed environment off of Earth. And that started a whole lifetime of study for me on, on these um, what I would call hostile environments.
3: You uh, discuss the change that occurred during the Industrial Revolution and the, um, I guess, the introduction of automobiles and how it really impacted the way that we designed um, towns and cities and, and how humans have kind of taken a backseat, so to speak. Tell me about that.
1: Well, you're, you're uh, tapping into an issue in architectural design that I call scale. Uh, scale is our uh, human connection. We, we, we seek uh, clues and cues in the environment through which we can relate, and then by then we can find our, locate ourselves more ac- accurately in the environment. So try to imagine, why does everyone love to go to Europe? Because Europe, in a place, was a place that was really designed before the automobile was invented. So we go there and we walk around, and we have this feeling of how warm the place is and how charming. And we call, we put these these wonderful qualifiers on it: charming, quaint, this and that. And and we just walk around. We just love to walk around the cities. Then we come to the United States. In the United States was is a fairly young country so it really is more automobile oriented so we design we design for the car more than we design for the people maybe that that will use the environments that we use so uh, if, if here's the classic example take a look outside where does all the snow on the road go it goes on the sidewalks. <laughs> you know what takes precedence so What I try to do when I'm teaching architecture and teaching aspects of scale is to say the car is very, very important. We cannot exist without it. However, don't let its needs intrude onto the human needs of what makes for a related environment. Don't relate the environment to the car, relate it to the person. The car serves the person, not the other way around, although I think we lean sometimes to the direction that we serve the car. And you know, one of the interesting things I, I, I find language is, is very powerful. Uh, we will call a, 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 a room, a volume where we dine, let's say we'll call that a dining area, right? Don't we do that? We call it, this is, a, this is the dining area, this is the living area. And then we paint two strips of color on a completely flat pavement and we call that a parking space. Now, if space is a higher form than area because it's third dimension. So we're giving more status to the car than we're giving to ourselves just by our language. So we, the reality is it's a dining space and a parking area. You know, we have to kind of like reverse our, some of our thought processing.
3: When I think about space, I think about um, sort of this vast, almost nothingness. But space is actually just as powerful as the things within space, as you're describing. In the work that you've written, you describe sort of both sides of it: the the thing, the table, the chair, the the person that inhabits a place, but then also the air, the atmosphere around that person, the table, the chair. Um, so that's an interesting kind of backwards, in my mind. It's more, it's an interesting backwards way of looking at it.
1: Well, uh, we're a very thing-oriented species. Uh, even from childhood, the first thing we do is we grab a block. So we are very object-dominant in terms of our processing, our thought processing, our living and everything. We look at the car coming down the road that's about to hit us, and we don't think about the diminishing space between the car and us. We think about the car is going to hit us. Um, so that in that space, yes, there's the objects, the the, the the table and the chair and the this and that, but there are also these aspects of the environment that have like an ambience, like the level of, um, um, let's say, acoustic echo in the space. Now, if we want to have a space, let's say, that's intimate, and we have a lot of hard surfaces that have a lot of reflecting uh, reflecting, uh, sound to it, if we have a lot of those, then the sound in the space becomes more echoey. And there are all these scientific uh, studies, I, I can't quite quote one right now, but that the higher the reverberation time, the less intimacy is experienced. So if you want an intimate experience, then it's not just the furniture, you use the furniture maybe to help quiet down the sound, you use the curtain, you use a plant, you use these things to make the acoustics calmer and more quiet, and therefore it would support maybe the true nature of the space, which might be intimacy.
3: You were the national competition design winner of the Maine's uh, Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And I believe in that space and negative space, well, I'll call it negative, but not yeah. in a bad way. Yeah, I understand. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, played a big role.
1: Any part of a design process is research. And research, research, research. That's, that's the, one of the keys. So I spoke to um, lots of veterans. And one of the things that was a thread that was going through all of their um, – uh, kind of reports to me about their experience was that when they returned to the United States they felt they were they were here people said they were here but they weren't really here they weren't being acknowledged so this this thought kept playing in my head here not here here but not here and so I thought what's a way to express that idea well if I make a statue it's here and it's here how can I make a statue that's here and not here? So what I came up with was the idea of a cutout of these three soldiers, two of them supporting a wounded third comrade. And it was just a cutout so that they're there in that sense, but they're not there because there's just a void where they would be. And it was designed so the sunlight would come through and it, through this opening and cast that shadow, that light shadow, on, on a back panel so that as you walk through your shadow impacts with their light and then you get to participate in their in their existence, even though they're still not they're still not being recognized you can't recognize them, you can't tell if they're coming toward you or they're moving away from you they're there, but they're not there and when I presented that to the um, the committee, the design committee for the um, competition, they got it you know I was just so ecstatic they really got that. They didn't, when I said, you don't want another statue, because it's not that kind, it wasn't that kind of a war. It was a whole different kind of a war. So um, when they when they heard my explanation, and I built a model, and I took the model, and I shined the light on the, on the thing, and they could see that shadow on the back, and they said, okay, we got it. And they went ahead and chose that as the design. And there it is in Capitol Park, and I'm thrilled to death about that.
3: Well, I really love this idea of light being an active participation in the sculpture. Because in, you talk about light as, as almost, um, as light and water, both, you know, you kind of make a parallel between light and water. And I love that because it's such an active uh, participant in what goes on in our lives, especially here in Maine.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, light is, is a source of of so much, uh, if their architecture, I mean, Louis Kahn, the, the architect that I studied with at Penn, said that your building never knew how lucky it was until the light shined upon it, or that's, I'm paraphrasing, but there was something like that. And that was the, one of the things that he stressed over and over and over again, the light, the light, the light. And it, there's a big difference between window light, which is a hole in the wall, and designed light, which is light that comes in and has emotive content. It has spiritual content. It it may have also task content for working and and being practical in that sense. It's a free energy. Uh, We need it. Maine is a a tough climate because we need the sunlight and the seasonal affective disorder because people don't get enough sunlight. I sometimes think that we may get that in our offices because we're not getting enough sunlight. The thing that sunlight does, and this is the most exciting thing about it for me as an architect and what I want to share with my students, is that there are no two seconds of light since Earth formed that have ever been the same. Every single moment of light is different. And now, what's the relationship of that to us? Every single moment of our life is different. So we have a natural connection to that is almost like another living being coming and keeping you company. I used to tell my students that um, you can never feel like you're completely alone in a sunny space. Even if you are alone and there's not another person or a pet or something, you can never feel alone in a sunny space. But take that same person and put that person in a space that doesn't get any sun, then you're going to start to feel alone. The implications of this for students in a classroom, for the elderly in housing that are don't want to be alone maybe. The most important thing maybe in their environment is not how much square footage they have but how much natural light they can get into their world during the day when they may feel alone and they won't feel that loneliness because the light is another living being. It changes moment to moment. It creates mood. It creates pattern. It creates contrast through shadow. And what have we done with ourselves? Well, we have placed our work world in environments that have separated ourselves from the sun. We live in the cubicle age. It's not the industrial revolution, it's the cubicle revolution, right? And because we're in these cubicles all the time, the light never changes. So we get starved, something happens to us, we will go to maybe a lower level of excitation. This is one of the issues when I was designing for NASA, is what happens when there's not enough stimulation, because we thrive on that, enough stimulation to be, operate at maximum level. So in the classrooms, to save heat, we'll cut out the windows. This might be a dangerous thing to do. So light is such an essential part of design. and and. It's a very big part of what I teach in architecture. On, on, You must bring natural light into every little spot in the environment.
0: Love, Main Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open honest and all about getting you on the road in fact berlin city recently won the 2015 women's choice award a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience berlin city honda of portland easy it's how buying a car should be go to berlincityhonda.me.com for more information Love, Maine Radio was brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com.
3: Sound for you is also important, and you alluded to this before. Um, but the way that you know light changes is similar to the way that sound changes, and it's something that needs to be taken into consideration.
1: Well, we're talking about acoustics. Um, I am certainly not an acoustical engineer, nor do I claim to be, but it's very important like i was saying about uh, issues of intimacy and issues of publicity meaning being being in the public each one of those may want a different level and quality of sound in order to support whatever that activity is so if we're in a space let's say that that we seek intimacy It's very important that the sound level in there reflect and support that activity. If it's too high reflectant surfaces, the intimacy is going to perhaps start to fade away. And we mentioned in the beginning about this thing called space occupancy or space therapy, a space occupancy profession kind of we will go into people's homes and they, they will come, and I have a, a, a partner in this, and his, his name is Terry Klein and he's an architect who works in Massachusetts. And we started this thing together. And um, we would go into a person's home, let's say, and they would share with us issues like, oh, are, we're, we're starting to not be as close or not as intimate as we used to be. And we want to know, is there anything in this environment that's contributing to that? So we walk around their environment, and they present it to us, and then we get into the bedroom, for instance, and we'll see that, wow, it's filled with stuff. It's cluttered. The acoustic levels are very, very high. No wonder their intimacy is disappearing. Here's the sad part. They will get to the point being wise uh, enough to go to a marriage counselor. and The marriage counselor will say, well, this, 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 and this, and that's all fine, and then they come home, to the pattern and to the mold that's giving them, that may be contributing to the problem in the first place. So all the good work that the counselor may be doing is being undone by the environment, and they don't even realize it because it's so subtle. It's such a silent partner in their lives. So our job is to make that silent partner more well-known to the individual. So that's why we do that. We go into people's homes and we tell them, how this space may impact their behavior over the long term.
3: There is a very real thing that happens when people who are bigger than us or louder than us or have different energy than we do um, occupy a space with us. So you use it as an example, you know, the big, loud, drunken guy at the bar. <laughs> yeah. And we each have an individual sense of our own need for space, but there is kind of more of a universal personal space that exists, as seen in things like elevators.
1: We ha- there's this a science called proxemics. Uh, it was, um, I, th- I believe, is a term coined by, by E.T. Hall, who's an anthropologist, who is the late E.T. Hall, who taught at McGill. And he talks about the spacing mechanisms in humans and, and in other animals. We are actually bigger than our physical selves, than the boundaries of our skin. We extend out in space. You can very easily tell this when you get a group of five or six people standing together, they will automatically space themselves out so that none of them will cross that imaginary line. Uh, If you're sitting at a counter in a restaurant and the person next to you's glass of water crosses this imaginary line, you suddenly feel very aware that that person is invading it's an invasion on a psychological level, right? So we all have these bubbles of who we are around us. Now, because of that, because of that, we obey these these bubbles and we don't invade them. Now, the interesting thing that you mentioned is that in other cultures, that bubble has different sizes. Uh, if you read E. T. Hall's book, *The Hidden Dimension*, you'll discover that the uh, That the Arabs have a much smaller bubble. Uh, Most of our riots happen in the summer. Why would they happen in the summer? Because when we're warm, that bubble gets wider and it's much easier to invade it. When we get on an elevator, everybody understands that I have no choice but to invade your bubble. I'm invading yours, you're invading mine. It's a silent pact, no one talks. No one takes up even more space by engaging in conversation. So, yeah, some people will do that, of course. But the general tendency, I mean, haven't you experienced that? The general tendency is I'll stay quiet. I will contract my bubble as much as I can, even though I know I'm invading everyone else's and they're all invading mine. And that, that uh, issue right there is why we, we do what we do in elevators. Now, the interesting thing about this bubble the interesting thing about the bubble is it's about, for us in Western society, about 40 inches by 40 inches by 80 inches. So it's about six feet, eight inches tall, which is curiously the height of a door. Most doors are six feet, eight inches. They reflect to our bubble. If you were to lower that door to, let's say, six foot four, even though, I, I don't know how tall you are, you're what? Five, five ten. Ten? Okay. If it were 6'4", it would invade that space, you would unconsciously duck. So we are bigger than we are. Now one of the keys to scale that I work with my students on is that can you reference that dimension of that bubble in the environment and then no matter how inhuman the environment may appear if I can put that evidence of the human in it by referencing those dimensions or that line. So not only at six foot eight with the door, but I'll, I'll maybe put a shelf around the room at six foot eight. And there's a statement now about the human in that environment. So that's how that bubble starts to impact the, um, how we relate to the environment. So again, going into someone's home, if these evidences of scale relatedness don't exist then they tend to move into themselves and that will affect how we relate to others personal interpersonal relationships, relationships with children and children have a different scale they have a different bubble than, than adults do
3: there is some ratio that humans are comfortable with and the the golden the golden ratio you know this it, and it, it has become really something that, I'm fascinated by because I'm not really sure, like, how we could use this in today's society. But it seems like it should be, I mean, we've done it through the ages. So why can't we apply it now?
1: Uh, What you're referring to is this relationship. um, It was designed by this um, mathematician, uh, Leonardo da Pisa, not da Vinci, da Pisa. And uh, he, uh, the guy's name, uh, he was Fibonacci, and he created this thing called the Fibonacci number. And it's, it starts off with the number one, then add one to one, you get two, two and one is three, three and two is five, five and three is eight, la, 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 on and on and up, And that goes to infinity. But what that defines is a relationship of one to 1.618. Now, I, I don't know if this is more technical than you want to get into here, but our bodies, our bodies are complete manifestations of this proportion, for instance, standing up, if you were to stand up, the distance from the ground to your navel is 1.618, the distance from your navel to the top of your head. The width of your nose compared to the width of your mouth, the same formula, front teeth to side teeth, your first knuckle to your second knuckle, second knuckle. Our bodies are completely expressing this kind of relationship. It's also in flowers, birds, bees, the shape of a violin. Uh, you, I mean, it's It's everywhere it is a natural tendency for us to want to reflect this relationship, this ratio. I, I kind of do the play on words, rational, it's rational, rational. you know. It's a rational thing for us to do. When we put that in the environment, like let's say the, the length of a space compared to the width of a space, we put that into that Fibonacci uh, proportion, then what we're doing is we're making that same kind of scale relationship of what I am, what nature is, to the environment. Now, here's the interesting thing. If it gets longer than this relationship, if the space, let's say, gets much, much longer than that, then the space is no longer stable in terms of its natural desire to want to go into a relationship, it becomes more axial. So what happens is that we end up with people will have a living room, for instance, or some other space, that's quite a bit longer than it is wide, and they wonder, well, why are we not having, you know, good conversations in here? And it's the it's the proportions of the space. It's saying move, because an axis says move, the activity in the furniture says no, sit and talk. You're getting these conflicting emotions, these conflicting signals, and there's a there's a usually and often a negative result. So what you do as a space therapist, and I guess I'd come back to that, is I would put a piece of furniture, I would take a piece of furniture and turn it and try to break the axis so it's so longer no longer that long, and I try to recreate that proportion, that 1 to 1.618 proportion. I do that wherever I can. I do that, you know. I'll do that in, in the shape of a chair, and where a painting is located on the wall in relationship to how high it is, from the ground to the you know the top of it to the from the floor to the ceiling. So you, if you can kind of sneak that into the environment, then we have a chance to relate to it, and it's also a, an aesthetic thing. If you give a thousand people a whole list of rectangles to look at, ninety percent of them will pick the one that's in that Fibonacci sequence in that same proportion. So proportion is a big part of what scale is all is all about.
3: There was an anecdote that you wrote about with twins. One twin was in, in utero, in the uterus, and sort of head down and plus one station on his way out. The other one was kind of free-floating and just enjoying the greater womb, I guess. And then one of the twins in the bassinet would always head, the one who was head down, would always head towards the edge of the bassinet. The other twin was always kicking off his his clothing, his swaddling. So we are impacted by our environments from our very earliest life stage.
1: Yeah, I I say it, womb to tomb. It's all spaces. It's all. Each space has an impact on us at some time, and and it's interesting too because that the one child that had uh, his head in the plus one position, uh, when uh, in the crib, he would always wedge his head in a corner, and he was only happy when he was really wrapped tightly in a blanket. The other one re- rebelled against being wrapped tightly in a blanket. So, yeah, these these relationships form very early. And the interesting thing about that you're saying, too, is like, I don't know, it it goes back to childhood. Okay, so let's say um, you uh, didn't do well in school, all right, when you were in the fourth or fifth grade and your parents got angry at you and they sent you to your room and your room was painted blue, right? So you now go through life and you're ready to buy an apartment or you're ready to live on your own and you say, I hate blue, it's not that you hate blue, it's just that blue is triggering that environmental memory that it's a kind of a, called a sight-dependent memory. It triggers that emotion in you, and so you, you don't know why, I don't know why I don't like blue, I just don't like blue, or I don't like green or, you know, the dog or whoever, whatever happened. Those events, we inculcate those, and they become parts of our behavior and part of our what we expect from our environments and how we decide what we like. Well, what we don't like a lot we are con- we are we're an open system we are constantly in this symbiotic relationship with our environment um when you're put in a, i i there are two kinds that i consider i consider the thing called personal environments and and public environments the personal environments are the spaces that you use every day your home your office here in this studio um the, uh, the school that perhaps your children will go to. They go to it every day, day after day after day. That's where the power of the environment really starts to impact us. If you walk into Notre Dame, you're gonna go, wow, this is the most amazing place in the world. I am changed forever as a result of it. But that's an experiential thing, it's not a behavioral thing. It's the day-to-day spaces that impact our behavior. So that when we want it, we do the, the space therapy thing, we're not interested so much in doing the church, doing the bank, doing whatever. We're interested in doing the school. We're interested in doing the office and mostly doing the home, where you spend most of your time. And it's little subtle change. It's little lack of scale or over or not enough uh, uh, or too much reverberation time after time will start to impact your behaviors. And that's where it becomes important to bring someone in, look this over and say, look, this is what this, is what this space may be doing to you. It satisfies the codes, it's, you have all your furniture, everything in there is legal, moral, ethical, spiritual, and whatever, except that it's missing this little piece that every single day, it starts to worm its way. I use, the, um, I use this little example in my class called Boiling the Frog. Do not try this at home. (laughs) How would you boil a frog, right? Well, if you threw a frog into boiling water, what's the frog going to do? Zoom, it's going to jump right out, right? It's not going to stay there. Put the frog in cold water. And let's just say the cold water is our environment. You start turning the temperature up very, very slow. The frog will never know what's happening to it until it's too late. I don't know if there's a too late issue for us in our environments, but there's a definite impact on these things over time on our behaviors. And that affects our social interactions, our, you know, even talking about, I I talk about, okay, let's talk about the doctors and the nurses in the hospital. The nurse goes home to an environment. The doctor goes home to an environment. He or she, whatever, is going to be affected by whatever environment they're living in. That's their personal environments. And then they come to work are they more stressed because of that environment, a little less stressed? Does that have any, any sort of influence on their work? I contend or suggest that it does, which is why I believe that this service is so important.
3: Well, there are two interesting things that I hope that people will take away from this. And one of them is actually that we have an architecture program at the University of Maine, Augusta. <laughs> yes, and a lot of you. people don't think about that. Um, and the other thing that is that this exists, that the work that you are doing um, at Space Therapy is its very real, that people can go to you for design and behavior post-occupancy analysis. Absolutely. So yeah. these are very real things. How do people find out more about your teaching and the work that you're doing?
1: Well, the program at, at UMA, um, University of Maine, Augusta, is uh, in its 25th or 26th year now, so it's, it's been around for a long time. It's unfortunately a really pretty well be- best-kept secret. It's the only uh, public school, five-year public school of architecture in New England um, as far as I know. I don't believe there is all the other schools, Harvard and Yale and Princeton, these are all private schools. Um, the public school D- didn't have. And that's one of the reasons why I moved to Maine in the first place, because I wasn't sure I thought my ar- architectural education was satisfying enough, because it didn't handle a lot of issues that I wanted to talk about. So I thought I would try to start my own program. And that took about eight years. But finally, UMA and 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 some of the uh, the faculty up there in support of it made it happen. And we started this program. And we're now on track with NAB, which is the National Architectural Accreditation Board. We're now on track to have full uh, professional accreditation. Uh, it's the best financial deal in the country in terms of studying architecture because it's it's Maine, right? Uh, <laughs> it's very inexpensive to do this. So it it really is a um, it really is a very strong program, and a lot of the curriculum is based upon these issues of space, which we were talking about, scale, which is that connection that we have to the environment, and light, which is the thing that gives a space its vitality, it gives it its sense of aliveness, it gives it a sense of personality, all these things to which we may relate. And also that all of this under this big umbrella of that space impacts our lives. Space impacts our lives when we design our own or we would have someone come in and design for us it's whatever you do it's going to have an impact it could be positive could be negative you generally you'd like to avoid the negative accentuate the positive and that's what the space therapy does now because i am a full-time teacher well not a full-time anymore i'm adjunct now but um Most of the consultations, I I sort of let my partner do them, but if they're up here, he and I might do them together. His his name is Terry Klein, and he's a a space therapy consultant out of Massachusetts, and uh, he's been my oldest and dearest friend, and we've worked together for 30 years at least.
3: We've been speaking with Roger Richmond, who is a professor and actually founder of the University of Maine-Augusta's architecture program, also a design consultant and partner at Space Therapy. Um, It's a fascinating conversation that we've had, and it's great that you're doing the work that you're doing, and um, I hope people take the time to learn more about it. Thank you for coming.
1: Thank you very much. It's been an honor to to meet you and and talk with you, and and, uh, I appreciate that you're in support of this.
3: As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully.
4: Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When was the last time you took a break from what you were doing, from the work that was piled up on your desk and just looked up? I know that during the course of my days, I often forget to take a moment or two to just breathe, look up at the sky and dream terrible that I have to remind myself to breathe but when I do I feel energized because in those moments I'm able to let go of the daily grind and think more about what I want to accomplish how I want my business to grow sometimes those are the aha moments if we all took a few moments out each day to stop what we're doing and dream a little about our business futures not only would we feel a great sense of calm but we may come to realize that these dreams can, in fact, come true. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com
0: This segment of Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com.
3: It is my good fortune today to have on the show Eric Stark. He is an associate professor and the program coordinator for the University of Maine at Augusta's architecture program. Professor Stark maintains a small architectural practice in Portland doing residential and institutional work. His ongoing research includes community partnering, the use of diagram in architecture, and furniture design. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you. So you're not from Maine?
2: No, I'm, uh, well, I grew up in California, so I spent most of my life in the San Francisco Bay Area.
3: So it must have been... Um, quite an important thing, this architecture program going on at the University of Maine in Augusta to draw you all the way across the country and make it part of your life's work.
1: Well,
2: actually, I came across the country um, slowly uh, for different school programs. So I actually did my undergraduate in Iowa, uh, studied Shakespeare and theater design, And so I did a lot of theater work, uh, both design and construction, for a number of years, and then went back to study architecture. And so I actually went to graduate school in Cambridge at Harvard, and that's how I ended up on the East Coast. Um, And then once I graduated from there, uh, in my first job, I met my now wife. Uh, She's from Maine, and so that's actually how I ended up in Maine.
3: Your wife is also, um, she also holds an important position within the architecture community.
2: She does. She's the executive director of AIA Maine.
3: And her name is? Jeanette Schramm. So those of you who are listening who have some connection with architecture know that I'm, I'm now speaking with the husband of the AIA director for the state of Maine so in, right. so this is a very this is like the power couple of architecture in the state of <laughs> Maine which is pretty great actually. Um, I love what is being done with the University of Maine at Augusta. Uh, this is so exciting because um, this is we didn't have an architecture program until relatively recently.
2: Well, the, we didn't have it in its current form. There actually has been some form of architecture at UMA for 28 years. Uh, it started as a two-year degree. It went to a four-year degree back in 2003. And just recently, and it is a major change, what it's become is the first professional degree in Maine. And it's actually the only public uh, undergraduate degree in New England. Um, so that's a huge thing. It's an, It makes it incredibly affordable. Uh, but I think it also begins, to answer and fill a gap um, in architectural education, specifically in Maine. Prior to this program starting two years ago, the five-year degree, if you wanted to be a licensed architect, you had to leave the state of Maine. Uh, And now with this new program, students, whether they're getting their first undergraduate degree or coming back to school, um, can stay in Maine. Uh, A lot of our students, uh, you know, they have families. They already have businesses. Uh, Some are true freshmen. But it gives them an opportunity to study in Maine, uh, which, as I said, allows it so they don't have to leave the state, but it also they're connected to Maine. I mean, Mainers, I think, really love where they're from. um, And this allows them to stay here, study here. And a lot of what we do, where we do have a global outlook and we get our students outside of Maine, we're also rooted here. And we understand that.
3: Now, how did you get from Shakespeare set design to what you're doing now? What was your original interest in in that?
2: Um, Well, I studied... um, Uh, As an undergrad, I went to school in Iowa, and I studied um, theater with a focus on Shakespeare and Shakespearean literature. So I was designing sets I was building. Um, I like making things. That's what I like doing the most. I like making all kinds of things. Um, And so I did that for a number of years on both coasts. I work in Washington, D.C., and I also worked out in California, uh, mostly for Shakespeare uh, houses. Um, And as that progressed, I started thinking about going back to school. And actually, at the time, I looked at um, it wasn't just architecture. I'd always been interested in architecture. I got some really bad advice as a, in high school uh, from some architects. It was back in the 80s, and it was a miserable time to be an architect, and they let me know that. And so it, very much as a 16-year-old, I was scared. And I was like, oh, that sounds awful, so I'm not going to do that. Um, but as I started looking back, as I hit my mid-20s, late 20s, I started thinking I want to make stuff, and I looked at Furniture schools, industrial design schools, and looked again at architecture. And I felt in the world of architecture, there was more possibility. I could design buildings, uh, but I could also work in the landscape. You could, think inter- you could think urbanistically, and you could still design a chair. You could still do all those different things. Um, and so that's what I ended up going back to school for. Um, and I was lucky enough uh, to get into uh, uh, Harvard and get into a school on the East Coast, um, which I never thought growing up in California. If you told me I was gonna end up on the East Coast, much less in Maine, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, So that's really how I ended up out here.
3: I'm thinking about a conversation that you and I had just before we got on the air about your children, who are six and nine and going to a Montessori school. Mm-hmm. My All three of my children did their early years at a Montessori school, and it was very hands-on. There was, there's something very tactile about the Montessori education. And in fact, I went to a Montessori school, and I learned how to wash windows and set the table, right. and everything is very physical, hands-on, tangible. Do you think there's enough of that in education?
2: I don't. I don't. I think, And I think it's, it's, it's two things. I think it's definitely there's a hands-on quality um, that's really important. Um, and I can say that because it's something we do in the architecture program. All, all of our teaching, we try very hard to steer away from lectures where someone's imparting knowledge to you, but it's really about discovery. Let's, let's engage with a brick and see what we're gonna do with it. Let's talk to someone who actually uh, designs and puts up steel walls and see what that means. And I think that's the beautiful thing about the Montessori program is on one side, it's very hands-on, so you're actually doing it. Um, but I think as important, and perhaps even more so, there's this personal responsibility to the Montessori education, where each student from age three, I mean, you are responsible for you. And and that means you're responsible in terms of how you interact with others around you, um, but also that you're in control. You have some control over what you're going to do with your day and what you're going to learn. And I think that's the phenomenal thing that they teach. Um, and I see it in my kids. I mean, I, I think the teachers would say they see it more in the classroom than we always than we might see it at home. Um, but they really do. They understand that they're if they want to do something. I you know my my daughter just last summer was interested in the human ear. So she's like, let's go to the library and check out books on the human ear. And as you know, she was seven then. And so it's kind of shocking when your seven-year-old says that, and you're like, yeah, but that's what she's been taught. You know, she was learning how to learn. And I think that's sometimes, I mean, I'm certainly not an expert on education, uh, you know, younger education, but um, I think a lot of times that's what's missing. Is that what is the what is this individual, even though they're little, what are they interested in? What do they want to do? And how do you empower them to go out and do it?
3: So if that's not present in some forms of earlier education and you are getting people coming in as maybe 18-year-old maybe freshmen or maybe people who are further along in their career, how do you bring that out in them? Because I would think that would be quite important as an architect.
2: It's a great question. Um, That's actually really fundamental. You find a lot of our students who are coming right out of high school, most if not all of their education has been someone giving them something. Um, And so uh, really the way we try and flip that Um, is initially through just discussion, we're very open with it, is you have a huge responsibility here. You're responsible for your own education. You need to take that on. Um, But also an understanding that they um, are the ones who are, in a sense, directing – what it is that we're doing in the design studio. Um, So it's the reason we'll do a, um, we just did a small visitor center that was uh, located in Albuquerque, New Mexico, one of the projects I did with my second year studio. Um, And the reason I end up with 10 different visitor centers is because I have 10 different students. The site's the same, the climate's the same, the program's the same. It sits on this amazing barren landscape with these three volcanoes. So that's all the same for the 10 students. The reason we get 10 projects is there are 10 individuals. And that's what we try and really, that's what they have to understand. They have to understand that there isn't one answer to this. And the answer comes from you. It's not going to come from some book. It doesn't come it certainly doesn't come from me as the teacher. I, I guide you through this, but it comes from you. That's where it is. That's where it lies. And so then we help through a number of different exercises, some that start very conceptually and slowly move more and more towards what what most would think of as a building. We help them understand how do I pull that out? How do I discover what I think this project's about? Um, and a lot of that has to do with conceptual ideas. You know, So when you're thinking of something, we're talking about schools. Certainly a school has to keep people warm. It has to keep people dry. It, has to, it needs a place for the bus to stop. It needs classrooms of a certain size. But what's school really about? What does it mean to learn? Uh, that's a question, and others similar to it, that a lot of beginning students have never asked themselves. They think of it as school. Oh, I went to a school. It has a roof. It has this. It has a cafeteria. But that's, it's important, but it's also not important. Um, because without that extra something, without that other thing, like what's, what's it mean to learn? What's it mean to be curious? What's it mean to engage with others your age? Those are interesting questions. And those things all happen. Whether or not you are aware of them or not, as an architect, those things are happening in those spaces. And so you have to become aware of them. And so... That's really the push. I, I, it's a great question, because I think that's so much of the push for those beginning students is it's always turning it back on them. You know, they'll, they'll look at you sometimes, and they're waiting for the answer. And you just look right back at them, and you wait for their answer. I often say, I tell all my students, my job, pure and simple, is to ask why. That's my whole job, other, other than the coordinating stuff, and there's a lot of paperwork and all that. But my real job as a teacher, an architecture teacher, is to ask you, why did you do that? And initially, it's a blank stare then eventually they'll start saying things, well, I like it that way. And you're like, well, that's not a really great answer. Um, If you're sitting across from a client and they ask you, well, why does my house look like that? And you say, well, I like it. And they look at you, well, I don't like it and I'm paying for this, so let's do something else. There's no conversation in just, I like it. Right? Unless you happen to find a bunch of people who like what you like. You can't have a conversation with that. So you really have to be able to explain it. You have to be able to explain why I'm doing what I'm doing. I designed it like this for these reasons. And that's helpful definitely in terms of the client interaction, but it's most helpful for you as a designer. You need to understand why you're doing what you're doing. You need to have some basic conceptual idea that makes this school different from this school. Um, and that's hard. That's hard for a lot of people to come around to understand that. And then it's almost once you get that the next step that's perhaps even harder is okay so how do I take that conceptual idea and now turn it into a building that people do have to move in and it does have to keep them warm and it has to keep them dry it's the reason architecture is really complex and hard it's really hard good architecture is hard
0: there was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe reliable medicines carefully prepared by experienced professionals coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine's seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com.
3: You do the design work, and you're obviously thinking about materials that go into the designs of the buildings that you're creating, but then there's like the practical, in the moment, on the ground, actually building of things that doesn't usually happen at the hands of architects so there has to be a back and forth there has to be a crosstalk between you and the people who are actually the artisans on the project itself
2: definitely yeah and that's actually it's actually one of my favorite things I think actually and it's very important that you find uh those builders and those craftsmen um who want to have that conversation um and I think all too often um at least in talking to those people. I don't think architects always wanna have that conversation. Um, And I think we should, I think it's really important. I like nothing more than getting a plan um, to a certain point and being able to work with the builder enough to be like, yeah, I'm not sure what we're gonna do there. So you have to start, we need to see it before we actually place that window or that bank of windows. Um, I worked on this project uh, a couple of years ago where this builder gutted this space and it was so wonderful because he called me up and he said, yeah, you're gonna wanna come see this. And once this roof, this ceiling in this third floor space, which had have been at about seven foot six was gone, there was this amazing vaulted ceiling and, he's, and he he knew, he just said, I don't think you want me to build what you drew now that you see this. And he was totally right. And he said, all right, I'll be back Monday. And I said, all right, I'll have it all redrawn by Monday because he needed to keep going, but it was this great opportunity. I mean, he could have been halfway done and, and certainly I would have walked and be like, oh no. I mean, there was no way to know that beforehand. It wasn't, I made a mistake. It wasn't, he was, it was just, we needed to have that conversation. And that's one of the great things I think about design in general, but in architecture is that conversation, whether it's a conversation between you and a client, between a student and a community member, uh, between a builder and uh, you know, other builders or the, the architect is, it's a collaborative effort, which makes it hard, but makes it really exciting. You know, I don't think there's certainly some people who are so good at what they do um, as architects. They sort of have a vision for everything. Um, I'm certainly not one of those people, and I don't think there are a lot of them. You want that input. That's really the exciting part, is all these ideas, and and the architect is the one who then brings them all together, you know? And and, and it goes back to that concept. That's why that concept's so important. There's nothing better than sitting across from a client, or even a builder, and somebody suggests something, and that client or builder jumps in and is like, oh, no, no, we can't do that. That doesn't fit in with the concept, and you're like, they understand. They, you know, you've translated it in a way, and everyone understands that. So even someone who's you know, laying trim on a wall makes decisions, and you're like, that is a great decision, because it fits with what we're doing. I'm not sure I would have seen that, because I don't have 25, 30 years experience building. To not tap into that um, would be foolish. Um, but you also want to give it a framework. We're working on this project, not a different one. So how do all those things that we're doing, how do we make them all happen together?
3: I love hearing this because there are two things that occur to me. One is that um, you were describing people saying back in the 80s, oh, don't go into architecture. This is a tough time to be an architect. And this is happening now in medicine where people are saying to their children, doctors are saying to their children, oh, don't be a doctor. Nobody wants to be a doctor. It's too hard to be a doctor. And I just think that's the wrong way to approach it. I think we need to be approaching medicine the way that architecture is being approached, that we can no longer come in as doctors and say, well, here's the big design. Here's the evidence-based medicine. Here's what we think should happen. We need to come in and understand this back and forth, this relationship, this working with the team, this working with the patient. I mean, what you're describing really is collaboration. It's really the same sort of relationships that I deal with on a day-to-day basis in the practice of medicine.
2: Yeah, it, it's totally true. It's totally true. And, it's, and I think, again, it goes back to that community work. We, and we do a lot of that community work. We've got students that are actually working in teams, you know, and it, because architecture is collaborative. And so you have to understand that you have to appreciate that. You have to be able to communicate, whether it's verbally, but a lot of it's visually. You know, that's what we really do. You mentioned that architects don't build a lot of stuff. And it's true. We draw a lot of stuff. We draw the thing that is to be built. We, we deal in representation all the time. Um, and that's, uh, that's so fundamental to what we do. One of the interesting things that's happening now in architecture, though, um, is there is this actual lack of architects. The architecture profession as a whole is getting older. They're retiring. Um, and so for it, it, every indication is in the next couple of years, there will be uh, a great need for architects across the country. It's not just here, but across the country. Um, So I think it's a terrific time to get into, uh, if if it's your calling, and I really think it's that, because it's very consuming, it's all consuming. Um, It changes how you see the world. Um, But I think if it is, it's a great time to, uh, to get into the field of architecture.
3: Well, I'm very happy to hear that, because I'm going to ask you next, how do people who are interested in finding out about the University of Maine at Augusta's architecture program learn about how to do exactly what you've said?
2: Um, Well, the easiest way to do it is to uh, visit us online. Um, So it's uma.edu forward slash barch, b-a-r-c-h. And you can get all the information you want there. Uh, We've got great enrollment specialists, and actually I'm very hands-on in terms of uh, both explaining the program um, as well as giving tours of our facility. We actually moved into a new facility three years ago, uh, which is continually growing. We got our first laser cutter. We got our first 3D printer starting last year. Um, so we're doing some really fabulous stuff there. Uh, we're right in downtown Augusta, right on the river, uh, right on the Kennebec. Um, so that's been terrific. Uh, it's a great location, uh, partially because we want to work in the community to be in the community. Um, so yeah, just go to our website and we'll get you all the information you need.
3: Well, if I wasn't already a doctor, maybe I'd think about becoming an architect. It's been great. It's been a great conversation. Uh, we've been speaking with Eric Stark, who is an associate professor and the program coordinator for the University of Maine at Augusta's architecture program. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 196, Designing Space. Our guests have included Roger Richmond and Eric Stark. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit com. Lovemain Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week’s show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Lovemain Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as bountiful one on Instagram. We’d love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Lovemain Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Designing Space show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life.
0: Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Berlin City Honda of Portland, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. Love, Maine Radio is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Susan Grisanti, Kevin Thomas, and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our content producer is Kelly Clinton. Our online producer is Andrew Cantillo. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See www.lovemainradio.com or the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page for details.